Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I am Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me, as always, is Nathan Fox. Where are you, Nathan? I'm in L.A. Okay. That's the norm now, right, I think? Yeah, 98% of the time, although I, I uh, was in San Francisco last weekend teaching, and then I spent my Labor Day weekend uh, on a trip down the coast, which was beautiful. Um, California is gigantic and really pretty. So it was fun. Yeah. So where where'd you stop? What did you, you just went down the coast and one night in Monterey, one night in San Luis Obispo. Uh stopped and had lunch yesterday in Santa Barbara. And then yeah, made it back yesterday. Cool. Yeah. Is the weather nice there? It's spectacular. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's really hot here, so it's like ninety and humid. Wow. But that's that's DC. We're on top of a swamp, which is which is nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, um, so today we have a lot of uh, good stuff. There's a book I've been reading. It's called "Make It Stick" by Peter Brown and a couple other authors. It's actually the subtitle is more interesting. Let me see here what it is exactly. I have it on my phone. It's the science of successful learning. And it's basically about uh, all the research that's been done in the last 20 years on what uh, learning techniques are the most effective and how a lot of the most popular learning techniques are not effective and give the sense of learning, even though they're not actually learning, which is why they're popular. So I have a few things to say about that. Cool. And we have a bunch of letters, which is going to be fun to go through. One of those letters talks about a reading comp tip from... One of our listeners, we want to debate that and talk about its uh, effectiveness or, or non-effectiveness. And yeah, I think that's mainly it for today, right? Just a bunch of letters. Did you have anything that you wanted to add to that agenda? Um, well, we do need to talk about the new LSAC book. The new LSAC book? Yeah, we do, because I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's going to blow is your mind. It's going to blow your mind. Remember how last episode we were ranting about how the LSAC has this big gap in the tests that are uh, available? Oh, no. Really? They have it? <laughs> yep. Wait, yep. so which test is it? Because the gap is bigger than 10 tests. Yeah, so it's 42 to 51. Okay. That's... So they covered all but a few of the tests that are in the gap, right? The gap okay. is 39 through 51. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this one covers 42 through 51. If you don't do prep tests, 39 through 41 you're not going to uh, really damage yourself <laughs> but uh the comedy wow. thing let me check i want to get a, a live update here um lsat 10 actual official sort by newest arrivals because when i checked it the other day yeah com- comedically so it's called the 10 actual official LSAT prep tests 42 through 51. That's the title of the book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I guess, wisely didn't make it volume six <laughs> or, um, or, you know, they could have gone back and made it volume 3.5, I suppose. Um, so it's just prep tests 42 through 51. It's red and blue. Okay. Are you on Amazon right now? Um, where, where are you? Yeah. I, I'm just looking at Amazon. Okay. Um, it is now, when I looked at it the other day, it was out of stock, but uh, it, it is now in stock, and but it's priced at $30. Whoa. 
So the the newest one is only you know twenty four dollars. <laughs> no, actually, sorry, you can get the newest one yeah. for twenty one dollars and sixty seven cents by the time it uh, gets the Amazon discount. I, although to be fair, the list price on that is thirty four dollars. So okay. the list price on all the other books it looks like oh no, ten new is also thirty four dollars. The other ones are list price thirty dollars. So they made it. They made it a thirty dollar book, but Amazon hasn't discounted it yet. So now it's it's uh, sitting at a solid thirty dollars. But anyway, you can get prep test forty two through fifty one now in a book of ten from the LSAC. Wow! And, uh, it is available on Amazon right now. Someone, someone woke up there. I actually like this title. I think it's the best title they have. Prep test forty two to fifty one. It's the clearest title. All the titles to just list the prep test numbers because that's all the book is. The book doesn't have any explanations or anything. It's just the tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should also, by the way, um, maybe save the environment and get not include the writing sample for every single one of those tests. That's pretty <laughs> silly, you know, that there's 10 <laughs> writing samples in there. Yeah, that is pretty silly. I, I do like 15 minutes on the writing sample in my classes, and then I yell at the class to please never, ever, ever practice doing the LSAT writing sample because it's just a huge waste of time. But uh, these books, if you buy these books, you, you're going to get 10 of those <laughs> writing sample prompts. So if, you've, if you've seen one of those prompts, that's enough. That's plenty. Yeah. Um, they, they could definitely cut those out. They'd save like 30 pages per book times a zillion books that they print. Yeah, yeah, it would save a lot. And, you know, in fact, they could just spare a little bit of that paper for a couple things. One, in the back of the book, you know how they have these perforated uh, bubble sheets, which is great? But they have two. It's two on a side. I know. Everyone uses one side, and then they lose it, and it's like, well, now you only have effectively five bubble sheets for ten tests. Right. So they could put more bubble sheets in. Yep. Okay. Yep. What else? And then the second thing is they could reformat the games to reflect the current. Maybe you were going to say game that. Format. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they haven't even in the volume five book, you can see where it transitions into the new games that are spread across two pages. But the the older tests, like prep test seventy, or sorry, no prep test. Uh, what's the first test in that book? Sixty two. Prep yeah. test sixty two and sixty three and maybe sixty four or whatever. Those are still on the one page per game. Uh, format yeah you're right they could spread those out that'd be nice of them yeah uh well uh okay cool no but i mean this is awesome i'm glad they put this book out there uh i do think that prep tests 42 through 51 are totally legitimate for um studying i don't think that the test is significantly different from the prep tests in the 40s so uh, i'm excited that this book is out there and available for people to use yeah, this is going to save people a lot of money. I mean, even priced at $30, uh, you would have had to spend probably about 80 before. So you just save 50 bucks by getting this book. Instead of buying them individual, in, individually. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I'm making a, a sort of a, an inference here. We talked about this on the last episode, and yeah. then this just came out. So it seems to me that we must have caused this. Well, I mean, we know that correlation perfectly... Uh, indicates causation every time, right? So yeah. the fact that we talked about it and then this change happened means that we clearly were the only cause. <laughs> the only Not only did we cause it, we're the only cause. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm I'm glad to be an influencer. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I used that word. It was just on my mind. Anyways, I'm excited for these other things uh, that we're going to talk about. Do you... Should I jump into this book or do yeah, you? Yeah, let's do it. 
Okay, so this book I just started listening to. Uh, I have to thank MJ. MJ is a student of mine uh, from a couple classes ago who also is the one uh, who suggested the Art of Manliness podcast. Remember that one? That uh, That's kind of a funny title, but the one about, uh, what was it? Um, how bad do you want it? It's sort of this idea of if you imagine that going into a test is going to be difficult and you uh, plan for potential problems that you're more likely to succeed than if you kind of go in with wishful thinking that it's going to be super easy and everything's going to be fine because when something goes awry, then you're more likely to panic and falter. Okay. So anyways, that was what that podcast was about, and she suggested it. And then she sent me an article the other day about learning techniques. And in that article, uh, well, the article was either interviewing this author or by the author, I can't remember, but this book was mentioned, Make It Stick. And I would recommend this one, sort of like the Grit book by Angela Duckworth that we talked about earlier. This one, I think, is actually pretty relevant to anyone who's studying uh, for the LSAT and just for law school. The whole idea is what techniques make what you learn stick in your mind and what techniques don't. And one big sort of takeaway that I'm getting from this book, which is really, it's all sort of study-based, right? They're saying, hey, look, there's all these myths out there about how people should study. And the reality is that people have been doing a lot of controlled, um, scientifically reviewed studies that say a much different or tell a much different story. And so the big takeaway that I've gotten from it so far is what's easily learned is easily lost. And so a lot of times what we learn when it's really easy to learn it and we feel good as we're learning it, we get the sense that we are learning and therefore sort of gravitate towards those methods. One of the most popular ones is to reread stuff that you've read before. So you may read a chapter and then feel like, hey, I need to to learn this stuff. I really need to know it. So I'm going to read it again. You know, people might be reading the Power Score Bible chapter on flaw questions and then feel like, hey, I need to, to learn this. So I'm going to go read it again. And this book is saying, hey, it might you might feel good while you're reading it and be reminded of what you sort of read before and thus feel like you know it even better. But the reality is that it's not an effective method to learn. And so some of the uh, much harder techniques, which involve stopping and trying to recall what you've learned uh, even just five minutes ago, is much more difficult and something that a lot of people don't do because they don't feel like they're learning. But those methods are actually the most effective. Apparently, we lose about 70% of what we hear in just minutes. So if you're having a conversation with someone for a few minutes and they're telling you something and then you turn around and say, okay, what did you remember? What did you talk about? About 70% of that is is lost almost instantly. Huh. So uh, by by analogy, or if, let me see if I can think of how this would apply. We We talk a lot about how when you review your mistakes, you should review without knowing what the credited answer is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you say that maybe what's happening there is when you review with the credited answer in hand, that it's almost too easy at that point? Yes. So, so it's just like, oh, yeah, here's the answer. You look at the answer. Oh, yeah, of course. Sure. That's the answer. And and maybe you actually do kind of understand it in that moment. 
but then you might not learn anything from it because you didn't have to try hard in order to to get that. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. So you didn't have to try hard to get it. So there's really two problems, I think, going on there. One is that you're less likely to recall whatever you did learn. And two, I think it's actually really questionable that you learned that much. You know, I think we've talked about this a lot when people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I see D is better. And then you just say, okay, cool. Tell why, me why. why yeah. yeah, why is it better? And it's like, mm, well, you know, um, and it's just sort of vague talk. Right. And I, I don't want anyone to feel bad, but it, it's just a test for yourself to see really how much did you learn from that and how much are you just sort of deceiving yourself. Yeah. And one, uh, they, they brought up the Rumsfeld, uh, Rumsfeld quote. You remember the, the known knowns, the known unknowns, and then yeah. the unknown unknowns? Uh-huh. And they said that when people learn in a way that sort of makes sense, like they're, they're listening to this podcast or they're reading a book, and the more clearly it's written, ironically, the, the easier it is for them to understand maybe a, a sort of complicated subject matter. And because it's so easy to understand, they sort of walk away from that experience thinking, hey, I just I just learned a lot. And it's really not true. And so it's an unknown unknown. They don't even know that they don't know. Hmm. Right? So this this feeling of learning, but not actual learning taking place. When it comes to the LSAT, the, the book starts out with a story about a pilot who ran into a problem. And, and the, the story was uh, somewhat interesting, but it actually made me think of the more uh, dramatic story. Do you remember this uh, Captain Soli? Yeah, Tom Hanks. Yep. And now the, the movie's coming out and they took a quick recall for anyone who, who hasn't heard about that story. But basically, the plane took off from LaGuardia, I think, and hit some birds within like the first minute or something like that. And that flock of birds killed both engines and they didn't have time to get back to the airport or to another nearby airport. So they ended up landing in the Hudson in the middle of winter. And everyone on board survived. Um, not too long after they landed, of course, the plane, I think, went under. But the, the, the point of that story and the point of sharing this, this story in the book was to show that when this was happening, and, and apparently this all happened in 204 seconds or something. I think that's what I remember from the trailer. But uh, Soli was going through a checklist of things. Like, okay, so are the engines out? Yes, they're out. Okay, what are our options? Can we, can we go back to the airport? No, we can't go back to the airport. We're losing altitude this quick, you know, too quickly. Uh, can we go to this other airport? No, we can't. Can we, can we land... Uh, here or there or whatever. No, I think we're going to have to land in the Hudson. Okay, if we land in the Hudson, what are we going to have to do first? What are we going to have to do second? Who's going to have to come there? And he was able to go through this checklist of, you know, tons of things. I don't know, 20 things or whatever, very quickly, correctly, and make what seemed to be the, the right decision. At least it had a great outcome. And he wouldn't have been able to do this if this wasn't knowledge that he was completely fluent in. And so the book was sharing this story to say that, hey, a lot of people have some sort of familiarity with ideas, but they don't re- like they've heard of them before, but they don't know them enough to access them in the moment under pressure when they need it. And I think this is so true when it comes to the LSAT because so many people learn about the logical reasoning question types or whatever 
And then as soon as they go take a practice test, they're like, you know, I didn't even think about any of that. I just read the passage, read the question, and answered them. And they're not applying what they know because it's not something that they're fluent in. It's not immediately accessible because they don't know it as well as they should. Hmm. Is that why people who do practice tests improve faster? Because they are forced to sort of be tested by it, you know? It's, yeah. it's just it's harder because they... They don't get it, but they're figuring it out by doing practice tests and and review. I, I think so. I mean, some of the thoughts I had is that, uh, and they talk about this in the book, they talk about it in terms of quizzing, obviously. They don't mention anything about the LSAT, but they say that quizzes and testing, uh, and, and they do mention low-stakes quizzes, which makes me think that there is value in doing sort of testing that's not necessarily always, you know, full blown, which would be like 35 minute sections, but even shorter than that. But in any case, that when you do testing uh, or quizzes, it reveals to you your unknown unknowns, right? You had no right. idea that you didn't know this. And now, well, you just got it wrong or you took too long. There's something missing and you it forces you to confront those things. Yeah. I mean, that's my whole theory. That's literally all I do in class is just, hey, let's dive in, do some tests make some mistakes the test is going to tell you what you don't understand and then let's figure those out and hopefully yeah. not make those same mistakes next time yeah so one one analogy that i thought was interesting is this idea that when you learn something and then stop and try to recall it right either through a quiz because someone asks you a question and then you're like okay well mm, let's see what was the answer or you just quiz yourself basically like you could pause this podcast right now and say okay what have we just been talking about what are some of the takeaways that I could uh, take from this and f that recall effort is difficult but um, as you do it it strengthens the pathway from I guess your conscious mind or whatever I'm not the neuroscientist here but the analogy is it strengthens the pathway from your conscious mind to wherever that information is stored and so the more frequently you recall a particular idea the stronger that pathway is so for example your name if anyone asked me what's your name you know I probably have like a six lane highway that goes from my conscious mind back to your name, wherever that is stored in my mind. Whereas if someone asked me, you know, who's so-and-so's who's -so name from someone I met at a party randomly two months ago, I'd be like, uh, I don't remember, right. you know, because there's just not that pathway back there. And if someone said it, I might be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like that pathway is just, it's a dirt road <laughs> and it's getting, you know, it's hard to see. But the more that you try to recall things, and do it over like a periodic set of time. Like you do it once a day or once every other day. That frequency is what creates the pathways. Like if you do it a bunch in one day, that's that's great. But if you don't look at it again for a while, that road is going to get old and dusty, you know? Right, right. So back to, you know, one 35-minute section every single day over a long period of time to really like dig that trail in in your brain. Yeah, exactly. And to go further, like when you take these sections and you uh, get things wrong and you try to figure out why they're wrong and so forth, write down concrete things that you learned. And then the next time you study, try to recall them from memory without looking at your notes at all. Just say, okay, I remember I wrote down five bullet points. Let's see. One was this, two was this. Oh, shoot. I don't remember the other three. Mm -hmm. Then look at them and say, oh, okay. 
wow, I mean, I just learned this yesterday and I've already forgotten them. And then try to remind yourself what you learned and so forth. And then the next day, do the same thing until you can check off all those five things. And then you know them. It's so much more effective than just spinning your wheels and doing this over and over again, right? I think there's, we can take the 35-minute section model even further with a little more, what I think is difficult. I mean, it's very hard to sit there and try to recall things. So, but he's saying that's precisely when people feel like they're not learning is when they probably are. Yeah, that makes sense. I've been using um, sort of the Socratic method more from time to time in class. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll be doing logical reasoning and someone will say, hey, let's review number 11. And then I'll immediately say, okay, wait, who was this that asked for number 11? Oh, Sarah. Okay. Uh, Sarah, what type of question is this? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and then and then a lot of times they'll they'll freeze at that point, and then it's like, well, one, that's your problem if you don't yeah. understand what type of question this is. I don't know how you're supposed to be able to answer it. Mm-hmm. But then if they do say, you know, oh well, it's a necessary assumption question, then I go, oh, okay, very good. So, uh, Sarah, what are we gonna what are we gonna do then? What's our plan on a necessary assumption question? Yeah, and then sometimes they'll they'll be you know crickets or they'll say something that's not quite. Right. But it's in that moment where they're stuck, where they're struggling. Yeah, just it seems kind of obvious that that's the point where they're actually going to be burning in those roads because they're they're really struggling on it. Yeah. And I mean, so that's extremely valuable and something that anyone can do to themselves. Right. If they force themselves to sit there and try to think, okay, what is this? And even if you get it right, even if you're like, okay, well, let's see here. This is necessary assumption, and uh, hmm, for necessary assumption, I have to do this, and the answer is typically weak, and whatever it is that you remember, uh, if it takes you, if there's that lag time, that road is still just not well built enough, sure. right? It's mm-hmm. still like uh, a city road, and you need to make it a highway. So it's like, okay, weekend, boom. This is there's going to be an argument. There's going to be a flaw. Sometimes I ask people, I'm like, okay, so weekend question, what are you going to do first? And they're like, well. Find the main conclusion? I mean, is there a main conclusion? It's like, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, there is. You need to know that. Like, <laughs> there should be a problem and so on. So, yeah. anyways, uh, it's a great book. I'm only like an eighth of the way through, and it's already just got a ton of stuff that at least I, I'm excited about to sort of reaffirm, I think, a lot of stuff that we are doing and sort of tweak and make things even more effective that we're not. Let's make it stick by Peter Brown. Yeah. We can put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. There's one last thing I did want to say is that uh, he said that a lot of times people will gravitate to certain learning uh, techniques. Like they'll say, hey, I learn better by reading or I learn better by talking through a problem or whatever. And he said that really the, the best learners are tapping into all of the different venues. So they're they're trying to talk through things. They're trying to listen to you know, discussions, they're trying to read about things, even if some of those study methods are less preferable, because when you attack something from a variety of different angles, it just creates like different pathways to the same idea, and that in turn strengthens it. Cool. Yeah. So anyways, uh, a lot of random stuff there, but um, that's that book. That yeah, sounds like a good recommendation. Yeah. So uh, the next thing I just really wanted to talk about uh, quickly was I'm looking for people, volunteers to help review videos from my class. So every time uh, my class meets, I record the entire lesson and 
what this does is end up creating multiple videos of the same game or the same logical reasoning question. And because a lot of classes end up going over the same ones, you know, same same questions come up and up over and over again. I have this huge like library of videos. And when I have multiple videos for the same question, sometimes it makes sense to keep all of them because different classes have different discussions. You know, people, different people have different issues and they see questions from different angles and that will kind of guide the discussion in different ways. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it makes sense to keep the multiple videos, but on other occasions, some videos are just useless. Like, hey, why is A? Well, A is right because it's, it's wrong because it's too strong. You, you see the all, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, oops over you know right, yeah. and so it's kind of a useless video so it needs to be removed or both videos are exactly the same one is just a little bit better or clearer or whatever so right now Seth remember who we interviewed before he's helping me go through all these duplicate videos and figure out which one should be kept which one should be uh, get re- removed and so on and uh, some other podcast listeners are helping out with that and it's really helpful and I wanted to thank thank all of them for helping with that but we have so many videos that if if more people would be interested in reviewing these videos, um, getting some tips on the LSAT as you're doing so, it would be very helpful. So just email me at ben at strategyprep.com and I'll put you in contact with Seth and then you can try it out and see if it's something that interests you. One thing that I have thought about um, even before reading this book is that the people who are reviewing them have to comment on the videos and figure out which one's better and which one provides a better explanation. And I've almost wondered if they've gotten a lot more out of them because they have to be so much more engaged, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. Oh, but, totally, yeah. No, sounds yeah. like a great opportunity to learn. So anyways, yeah, uh, just looking for volunteers. If you're interested, email me. Now, uh, we have a bunch of letters. Do you want to just jump into this first one? Sure. Uh, I'll read it. Okay. It says, I've listened to your podcast a couple times. I'm a big fan of your witty and dry humor. It's much appreciated with the LSAT being so dry. I just decided to jump into LSAT studying recently in preparation for the December exam. After doing, doing the June 2007 exam, it's clear that I'm strongest in logic games. Weird, I know. Followed by reading comprehension, followed by LR. We might make one note there, huh, Ben, that the the games from June 2007 are pretty easy. So if you're just uh, assessing your game's ability on that one data point, you might find that on some other sections of games, you're going to struggle a little bit more than you're thinking. Yeah. Um, Given that I have three months of studying, I've mapped out my study schedule as follows. Knowing that I need to learn the tips, tricks, and strategy of each section before focusing on speed and efficiency. Uh, So here's the plan. September, five days a week, two hours, going over content, strategy, and technique for each section. Then October, uh, still studying five days a week, two hours at a time, focusing more on speed and timing since I know that will be an issue for me. Then November, still five days a week, two hours at a time, overall review. Keep in mind, I'll be doing one practice exam roughly each week to track my progress. My questions are as follows. 
Number one, I heard you guys mention doing one 35 minute section each day. Is that what you would rather suggest I do? I'll be using PowerScore books and LSAC books. Want to start there? Yeah, so I would suggest that. I think it's good to go over content and strategy. I do think it's valuable to go into a practice section with some ideas of what you should be doing as opposed to just not having any of that information at all. But I think it sounds like his September plan is too focused on technique. I would I would maybe spend a half hour reading about some certain concept or idea and then say, okay, cool. Let's say it was flaw questions and logical reasoning. Now let's do a 35-minute LR section. And on those flaw questions that come up, and the ones that are related to it, start implementing some of the things that I've just read about and see if I can really test myself and see whether I really learned anything from that. If you wait until October or wait until the end of the week to try it on a full-length test, I think you're going to end up not really learning much or remembering it. I just can't even imagine what you would be doing for five days in a row of two hours a day where you're just studying like theory. Mm-hmm. I, there's not that much. I don't have that much to say. I don't have 10 hours worth of theory. I mean, yeah. the, there's just, there isn't the test. There isn't that much of it. What you need to do is you need to dive in and start practicing it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you can read theory for a little tiny bit, but then I think you've got to just get the clock ticking and, and, and do a real section and see how that theory interacts with the actual real sections. Yeah. You mean you're going to learn the theory a lot deeper that way if you are confronted with some sections and you mess up a little bit and then maybe you could go back and read some more of the theory the next day and then the theory will start to make more sense but the theory separated from the actual 35 minute sections is really hard to understand. Mhm. Yeah. I mean one thing that's good here is that he is using the PowerScore books so those books include a lot of practice problems which means he's probably going to be doing more problems than he thinks he is, <laughs> yeah. or maybe he already knows that. Even then, like you, st- like okay, so you do the, you read, you do the practice problems, and then you're like, okay, now let me try to implement this in a 35 minute section and see what it's like. Focusing on accuracy despite the time pressure, but you have to feel that time pressure. Otherwise, you're not going to get used to ignoring it. Right. That's exactly yes. You, that's that's exactly the point. Like I, I don't think in October, the way he's got his plan is he's going to switch to switch into like speed and timing mode in October. And that's exactly the wrong way to think about it. You, I, I, I don't want you focusing on speed. I don't want you focusing on timing. I want you to be immune to the effects of the ticking clock because you're always timing yourself every time you sit down to practice. And while the 35 minutes is going, I don't want you looking at your watch. I don't want you thinking about the time. I want you to be solving the questions calmly and just as efficiently as you can. But that is absolutely zero related to like putting your foot on the gas pedal and, and, and monitoring, you know, your speed. Yeah. The only thing that I would say when it comes to speed is if you sit down and you get 19 out of 20 questions or let's say even 11 out of 12 questions correct in 35 minutes. Well, okay, so you're you're doing very well on those 12 questions. You got 11 out of 12 or 12 out of 12. That's a sign that, yeah, you should focus on 
speed a little bit in the sense that now you're going to try to do a little bit more in that same time frame because you're apparently doing them very well. But that's it. Like you're now you're shooting for 13 or 14 questions, but you're not saying, okay, now I'm going to just gear up and go for the whole section or I don't even know what else you could focus on when it comes to timing. You're still predominantly focusing on accuracy. You might just be doing a few, one or two more questions in the section and that's it. Yeah, and I really think that should be a natural outgrowth of just mastery over the content. I mean, this this theoretical student who only does 12 questions and gets all 12 of them right in 35 minutes, I don't know that student. You know, I just, it, to me, that just is very, very rare. It is rare, but I, I do uh, encounter some students who seem to do, be doing very well, and it's almost like, well, maybe you're, maybe it's time to try to do a couple more questions. Like they take the accuracy thing, accuracy thing to heart so much that even when they're debating between two answers and they know one is right, they still kind of like triple check it or something. And it's like, hey, okay, you're doing well. Like now try to push yourself out a little bit. Hmm. But I agree. As you start to become more accurate, your speed naturally goes up because you understand stuff. And it's, if you understand it, you see it. Yeah. You start to see how the test is really easy. And then you're just picking the right answer and moving on in a reasonable amount of time because you know that that's the answer. Yeah. That's how it feels when you're doing it right. And when you do it that way, the speed doesn't, it's not nearly as much of a problem anymore. You know, you, you, you naturally start doing one or two more questions because you're getting them all right. And you get to that new level of, oh, now I'm reaching 13 questions, you know, and and then maybe the next time, maybe you'll reach 14 or 15 questions. But mm-hmm. it just isn't related to looking at the clock and thinking about, oh, I, boy, I better hurry up here. I better go a little bit faster. I mean, I just, in my experience, as soon as people start doing that, that's when they crash and burn. Cool. So, yeah, we are both recommending that you immediately start doing 35-minute sections as part of your regular practice and that you don't study so much theory. Question number two, you had also mentioned that it is crucial to get the first 5, 10, 15 right for each section and fill in random answers on the last couple questions. Do you suggest that for all students? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, until you're scoring 170. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Show me your practice test where you scored 170 and then I'll say, oh, okay, well, you should probably be finishing the sections. Although you can totally miss 10 and still get a 170. So, you know, it, it's also possible that you don't finish the sections and score 170. Yeah. But if you're scoring 160, you have no business doing every question on the set on the section. Yeah. I mean, there's, you're just, the reason why you're scoring 160 instead of scoring 165 is because you're doing too many questions with not enough accuracy. Yeah. One thing, by the way, that I've been telling people recently, and one thing I've been looking for is um, after they take a 35-minute section, let's say that they got three wrong, so they got 17 out of 20. Uh, They got more wrong, but they got of the 20 that they did, they got 17 correct. Mm -hmm. What I will do is I will go, I ask them to put their results into my score tracker. I then go in there, and it tells me the difficulty level for each of those questions, and I will look at the three that they got wrong. And if the three that they got wrong are difficulties one and two, or sometimes even three, I'll be like, hey, wait a sec. The three that you got wrong are easier questions. That strongly suggests that you 
even though you did pretty well, 17 out of 20 is not bad, you still were going too fast or something. Like, why did you get these wrong? But if I look at them and you have like question seven is wrong and it's a difficulty five amongst, you know, a bunch of difficulties, ones and twos, like, well, yeah, maybe you got this wrong because you're going too fast, but it's not unreasonable to think that maybe you just got this wrong because this is a hard question. And a lot of other people got it wrong as well. So looking at the ones you get wrong can kind of make that case even more that, hey, I was going too fast or, mm, okay, this kind of makes sense because these were difficulty fives. Yeah, and when you go back and just the the classic thing that happens is like people ask me to review number 17 and I start reading it and then they just go, oh, yeah, I misread that. Mm-hmm. And well, if you're making a lot of those kinds of mistakes, regardless of what the difficulty of the question turns out to be, mm-hmm. if, if you diagnose that mistake of, oh, I misread it, then obviously you're, you're, you're trying to do too much. You're going too fast. You have to slow down and focus on getting the ones that you attempt right. Yeah. Uh, the third question here says, what are your must do's for, e- I don't think we can answer this question. What are your must do's for each section in terms of things you must focus on? In logical reasoning, you said that you must get the must-be-true questions correct as they are freebies that everyone should be getting correct. Mm, Did we say that? I don't remember saying that. Yeah, it doesn't sound like something I would have said. I mean... You can have some really hard must-be-true questions. Right, yeah, especially just later in the section, right? I mean, the the, the freebies are questions 1 through 5 and 1 through 10, right? There's going to be maybe one or possibly two questions that are difficult in the first 10. Yeah. And so my number one must do for all three of the sections is that you have to get the earlier ones, right? Five out of five and nine out of the first 10. And mm-hmm. if you're not doing that, then you, you just have to slow down and start getting those. Cause those are really the gimmies. Um, do we have any other tips like that? Like the give the gimmies for any particular section? Well, so I feel like this question is asking two different things. What are your must-dos and then what are the equivalent gimmies? Like I feel like I don't think there is any. I mean, yeah, the first few questions like you're saying, that's that's the gimmies, I guess. Yeah, but not must-be-true questions. Yeah. I'm not even sure what to like make of that question. What's the gimme? I don't go through go into a section thinking, well, what what are the gimmies? What are the what's um, yeah. what's the stuff I can just do it feels to me like that encourages searching for questions that are easier or something. Right, which you shouldn't be doing. I mean, I can say the one gimme would be on the logic games, the list question, right? The very first question of each game. Sure. And I am yeah. not advocating that you do the list question for all four games. That's <laughs> really a waste of time. But when you get into that game, the first question, almost every game, the first question is this list question that you can do by process of elimination. And all you have to do is test each rule one at a time and knock out answer choices and you'll be left with one and only one answer every single time. That's a gimme. Okay. If if you find that you're missing a lot of those, then you are really building a shaky foundation for that game, right? Because you're just not even understanding the rules. Yeah. So that's a gimme. I think on the reading comprehension, I do think that the main point questions should be gimmies on the reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. Um, You've gone to college you know, you, you you should be able to read one of these essays and just figure out what the main point is. And you should so you should be reading in such a way that when you get done reading the passage, you know they're going to ask you what was the main point, and you should say, oh well, the main point was basically X Y Z. 
And then when you go into the answer choices, you should frequently be finding, you know, almost exactly what you predicted. Yeah, I would say those are less of a gimme than the the first questions in games, right? Like the right, first questions course. in games are like super easy. I feel like there are people who legitimately struggle with main point, but to those people, you have to take the hard path, which means you have to stop after you've read the the reading comp passage and ask yourself, what is the main point? The easy path is to say, oh, here's the question. What's the main point? Hmm, does A sound like the main right. point? Right. <laughs> and that's that you have to take the hard path and if you do that you will get better and by the way it'll be good for law school it seems like the hard path but it's actually vastly easier right because if you just dive into those answer choices it's the easy thing to do yes yes it's also the the way harder way to answer the question because those answer choices are now going to start distracting you and confusing you yeah and it's much much easier to just cover up the answer choices and go okay well the passage was basically about this and the author basically thinks this is a good idea or this is a bad idea or whatever and then you go into the answer choices and it's just like zing right there you know glowing on the page um exactly what you predicted and now you don't have to waste so much time getting trapped by all of their uh wrong answer choices yeah. Hey, by the way, this just uh, reminded me, we've talked before on this show what the wrong answers in must or sorry, main point questions are in reading comp. And so here's my test to the listeners. If you've listened to our previous episodes, what are the two things that typically make a wrong answer wrong in a main point question in reading comprehension? Two things, huh? Yeah. Um, I'm not well, sure usually, I know. I'm going to have to think oops, about it. Okay. <laughs> what would you, uh, is there things that you think of as typically wrong in the main point question for reading comp? Sure. Um, so I would say uh, anything that misdescribes or goes further than mm-hmm. what the argument actually went, because main point questions are a, a type of must be true question. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. must be true questions don't like overly strongly worded aggressive, bold, absolute answer choices. Mm -hmm. So they Mm -hmm. can easily just kind of take the next step, go a little bit too far Mm -hmm. when they're describing the main point, and that will instantly make that answer wrong. So something Mm -hmm. that's not a must be true can't be the answer for the main point question. Okay, cool. Um, And then, of course, they have many answers that are just part of the argument, but not the actual main point of the passage. So just something that restates, you know, a, a part or a, kind of an introductory, especially like an introductory, you know, here's here's the issue, but it doesn't actually get to the author's main idea. Yeah. Many of the answers, like multiple wrong answers per main point question, I think are going to be sort of premises of the argument, but not actually the, the conclusion of the argument. So Nathan, were you adopted? I was not adopted. Why? Oh, I just wondered if we were brothers because that's the exact same thing I was thinking. <laughs> I just, I mean, I don't understand how it could be so so similar, but basically things that are inaccurate or things that are too narrow. Oh, okay. Yeah, perfect. Things You, you said it uh, a lot more elegantly than I did, but uh, yeah, no, those are, those are definitely the two things that I would be worried about. The, I think the second part of that is the dangerous part when you read the answer choices. Mm-hmm. The two narrow things, because you're going to get that fl- flash of recognition. You know, when you read that, you're going to you're going to be like, oh, yeah, it said that. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. part of that was in there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
yeah that's and it's got like one word that you like because it's got the topic word you know the topic word in there lichenometry or whatever and you're like oh that was definitely about lichenometry yeah and then you're just like okay i'm gonna take that but it doesn't have the the main you know what about what about it what about lichenometry why did the author come here to waste your time with this today Mm -hmm. and if you can't say why this is important or how this was related to the you know what (laughs) that this was basically the main idea of the passage then just because it it said it doesn't mean that it's the right answer and there'll be two or three of those right where they they just kind of rehash everything that was in the argument yeah yeah cool so i did have one answer to his question he says what are your must do's for each section and i would say that this is the same for all three sections and that is it's a really high level thing but i do think if you want to zero in on one thing that you have to do for all three sections i mean i know he's asking for each one but i think it applies to all of them and really this is just the test as a whole is that you need to understand what you're reading. I don't care. Like, yeah. I think you should know the question type. I think you should know what's going on and all these different things. But this is like skill number one. And I think sometimes I mention it in class and people kind of roll their eyes like, of course. Of course I have to understand what the passage is saying. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't. Yeah, and you're not understanding it. So why, you know. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, the LSAT, I say in class a lot, is a battle of will. Mm-hmm. And you you know you have to be open to the possibility that you're actually going to understand it you have to be open to the possibility that it's not as hard as you're making it out to be mm-hmm. and you you have to focus and you have to just force yourself to actually engage and actually do it and i yeah. think that's one thing that especially you know when i see somebody who is doing 20 questions per section and they're scoring 142 that person is not understanding what they're reading. I yeah. mean, they are just, it's, it's like tons of smoke and no fire whatsoever because mm-hmm. they're just skimming across the top of the, you know, they're, they're not understanding the passages. They're not understanding the argument. They're not understanding the question that's being asked. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but you're going to be a lawyer. Lawyers have to be good readers you have to start reading this stuff and actually understanding what's on the page. <laughs> There's no substitute for that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's not a tip so much for someone who's, you know, trying to get from 165 to 170. Mm-hmm. But that's a tip for anybody who's in the 140s or the 150s. It's mm-hmm. like you're you're not. The reason why you're missing so many questions is that you're not understanding what you're reading. Yep. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So the next one is from, unless, did you have anything else to say? No, to that's you? great. Okay, great. So the next one is from. Hold on, do you say we can say his name? Mm, I don't. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Doesn't say not to, so let's do. Okay. It. Well, anyways, first name. So Kyle, Kyle writes us and he says that he loves the podcast, which is awesome. Thank you. And he has this technique for reading comprehension that he has proposed to us, and I ended up testing it out this week on the LSAT. India test number two, which is the 2009 LSAT from LSAT India. And uh, I have uh, mixed feelings about it, and I'm happy to share those. But in any case, do you want to read any of this, or should we just tell, say what his method is? Yeah, the strategy is you read for basic understanding, so no pencil. You read the, pa- you read the passage trying to understand it, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Then read it again with the highlighter 
in your hand using Mm -hmm. the highlighter Mm -hmm. and highlight quote likely tested details Mm -hmm. so that's the strategy yeah okay i shit on it in advance or should i wait for you to talk (laughs) about your experiment i'm 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 happy to do uh whatever uh, I will still <laughs> share my experience uh, with the with my with the test LSAT India, which was fun. By the way, those tests are they. I don't see any difference between them and U.S. tests, except for the unfortunate fact that they seem easier. Are they? Um, so someone was telling me that they looked at some of them, and it's basically the exact same game in some cases, where they just changed the names. Is that true? Well, hmm. I don't think that's true, actually, because okay. I I did uh, the games. Well, I did the 2009 one, and the games are different. It's the same yeah. types, though. It's not. Of it's course, yeah, same types. Yeah, unusual. Okay, and are these actually formally free? They're they're just freely available, and we can do whatever we want with them. I don't know. Okay, because it says on the cover that they're free, but they were pulled down from. You know, uh, that other website. So oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I don't know why they pulled them down. Maybe LSAC asked them to. So hmm, I don't know. But yeah, what do you, you want to go ahead or do you want me to? I do about? not recommend that students bring a highlighter on the day of the test. I think it's one more thing to think you have to have and you don't necessarily need. Um, I'm very skeptical about reading the passage twice. I I wouldn't read it twice. I would read it once carefully and really understand it. I'm not sure that it's so easy to go back through and highlight the details that are going to be likely tested. And even if it were that easy, I would think, okay, well then let's just go back to them when they ask us the question. But, you know, I am open to, uh, I'm open to, to data so what how did it go with your experiment okay so first of all um i got all the questions right but i felt like this was in it it felt like an easier reading comprehension passage maybe this is because of kyle's technique who knows i i don't know what to say because i got to do it on more sections but uh in any case this is what happened i took his technique uh at its at its word so i read the first passage and I was reading it very quickly because the idea is just hey read through it get a basic idea of what's going on uh, don't have your pencil out nothing and then uh, read it again and highlight things that you think are relevant so I did this and as I got to the second paragraph I realized oops I was really kind of reading this fast and I didn't understand the second paragraph so I slowed down a little bit and that's probably me just implementing it incorrectly and I reread the second paragraph, and then I was like, okay, now I get what's going on, so I can go on to the remaining paragraphs. And then when I was done, I took out my highlighter, which happened to be pink, because that's all that I had in the house, and I reread it, and this time I highlighted things. Now, what I thought was very interesting was that, I don't know if it was actually the first passage or the second passage or the third passage, but one of these passages was about something that I really did not know anything about. I, it might have been a medical thing or something like that, but as I was going through and highlighting, my first observation was I actually kind of like the highlighter because I occasionally underline stuff. I occasionally circle things. I know that you don't do that at all, but I liked it because you could kind of just write over something. You could even write a letter 
over the text and you can see everything underneath it. I never made that realization before because I've never really used a highlighter even in college. But I was like, a little aha moment for me. I'm sure lots of people are laughing. But I was like, wow, it's really easy to see what's underneath. So you can do more than just highlight. But anyways, uh, the second thing that I realized that as, as, I, as I was reading this passage on a topic that I was completely unfamiliar with, details did stick out that I had certainly read. But for some reason, like their significance didn't stick out until I had read the passage as a whole. And I was like, oh, so, okay, now I noticed that they actually did this on, they did this experiment on two individuals. Somehow I had sort of not recognized that being important, but given what they're saying later, it kind of made sense. So I finished highlighting things. And by the time I was done, I felt like I had a much fuller understanding because of these details that I had just, they were like new information to me when I was going back again. Now, again, I got all those right. I don't know if that was because it was an easy reading comp passage or not, but when I went to another passage, another passage was something that I was somewhat familiar with, uh, or it wasn't like that new, didn't have a bunch of new words or new ideas or new concepts or whatever. And I read it through once and I was doing what Kyle said because I just wanted to test this out and experience it. When I read it again, I did underline things and I did highlight or I did highlight things, but my sense was sort of like, yeah, like I just read this. I know this. It, it didn't feel like it was adding any value. So when I was done with this section, my sort of takeaway was, I think I am going to read maybe one, maybe two passages twice, depending on how I feel in terms of the content or the, the details of the content when I'm done reading it. I, I actually felt like it was valuable and helped me go into the questions with a, a fuller understanding. It's like I had these like gaps in my knowledge and I had sort of filled them in because there were definitely things that I read and I was like, yeah, I don't remember reading that. But that only happened for that one passage. I think for the other three or at least two of them, I was sort of just like rehashing what I had already done. Yeah, it, and Kyle says that you know, this works, uh, has worked for him, um, who went from missing five to six per section, uh, and sometimes not finishing on time to only about two to three misses on average and in time. Um, Kyle does then grant that this could just be that, uh, he's been getting better at the test. And so he, you know, he implemented this new strategy, uh, at the end of his study or after spending a lot of time studying, so it's possible that the highlighting method hasn't been doing anything for Kyle either. The one thing it sounds like it did for you, Ben, is that it, and maybe this is what what happened to Kyle, is that the fact that that he has this strategy made him spend enough time on the passage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I wouldn't need to read it twice in order to do that. I'm just going to spend enough time with it the first time through. Um, Mm -hmm. but if you're finding that you get done with the passage and you don't understand, then maybe you do need to read it again. I would, again, just go back to, okay, you should have read it more carefully the first time. Well, so I wouldn't say that I didn't understand the passage. Like, I certainly finished, and I did have to reread that second paragraph because I wanted to understand what was going on. Just in terms of the amount of detail that I sort of left with, like, I feel like um, I don't... Even if I had slowed down, I don't feel like that second pass, I I don't feel like the first pass would have given me as much detail. Now, 
I, just like 20 minutes ago or 30 minutes ago, we were talking about that book and how it was saying that rereading is not an effective strategy right. for long-term retention. Um, but they did point out that there was actually a study done where people were asked to read things twice and then immediately tested on it, and they did better than people who read it once. Now, I'm not advocating, oh, it's like that's one random test, it's not the LSAT, but I did think, hey, I felt this way for a passage that introduced a lot of new ideas, and I am inclined to test it out some more. Uh, it, but not for all the passages, because definitely there were passages where I felt like I was just rereading what I already knew. Cool. Well, there you go. It's uh, something to potentially try. Um, I am not going to start teaching this in my class. It seems to me kind of obvious that if you read it again, you're going to have a better understanding than if you just read it once. But you could say the same thing about reading it three times. And so my hypothesis remains, all it's doing is it's forcing you to spend more time with the passage. Now, that I think is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think most people aren't spending enough time with the passage. That's yeah. why they don't understand it. So mm -hmm. if this strategy works and makes them understand and they find the questions are easier because they did this strategy, then by all means. But I, I am not, I mean, if I was doing the LSAT tomorrow for a million dollars, you know, in the LSAT Olympics, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I would only be reading each passage once. A lot of time I'm going to start over, right, and read the first paragraph twice or read the first half a paragraph twice or read the first sentence twice. Mm -hmm. Because I'm making sure that I'm comprehending as I'm reading. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine just my strategy would never be, oh, I didn't really understand that first half of the first paragraph, but that's okay. I'm just going to keep going here and get down because I need to read it once so I can read it again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd rather just be forcing myself to understand the first time through. But I, I don't know. I, hey, if this works for people, awesome. One thing I think that you keep kind of coming back to, which I, I, I don't think is quite correct, is it's not that I had this sense that I didn't understand, I was just surprised how many details I had sort of forgot or didn't realize their significance. Like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Like, it, it kind of added insights. Now, maybe you could get those insights with, by slowing down, but I feel like some of this is just you're, you're given a ton of information by Firehose, and by necessity, I don't think you're going to absorb all of it or even should even if you're trying to understand like what is this passage trying to say um and you can be done and be like yeah i get the idea i get the main point i get the structure and everything but there are these details that are lost that add insights okay uh, i see yeah 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 you're getting the big picture first time through and you're getting more of the details the second time through yeah it's sort of like layering right like it's sort sure. of when you have a discussion again about necessary assumption it's like yeah i get it but now, okay, there was a little detail that I missed before, and now you fill that in, and it makes even more sense. And I don't know how easy it is to get that in an unfamiliar subject matter, even if you're slowing down. Like, I think it, it does for help immensely. I, I don't disagree with you, but I, I'm willing to keep trying it out, and um, yeah, I, I'm willing to experiment. <laughs> you're a man of science, Ben. Yes, yes. So, there we go. Move on to this next uh, email? Yeah. That'd be okay. great. It's uh, from Shiva says, hi, Ben and Nathan, huge fan of the podcast. You guys really know your shit and it's been immensely helpful. Um, yeah, cool. Thanks for listening. Long story short, I missed the deadline for the September LSAT sitting. 
I think I was so obsessively studying for the test that I developed some highly unfortunate tunnel vision and I didn't register in time. I guess the upside is I've gone from about 160 to 172 to 175, depending on the practice exam. I'm now registered for the December exam, but I'm concerned about applying so late. I want to apply this admission cycle. I'm looking at schools in the top 10, namely Stanford, and I feel very, fairly confident that I can score higher than 175 by December. Does turning in my application in January pretty much preclude me from being considered for such schools? i.e. are spots full up by then or is it worth a shot? I've got a pretty legit GPA from Berkeley and Stellar Rex. Uh, no problem whatsoever. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, the, the quick and dirty is if you apply before Thanksgiving, that's considered an early registration. If you apply in January uh, with your December LSAT score, that would be right in the middle of the cycle. No problem. Um, we consider the February LSAT too late. If you're waiting for a February LSAT score, um, many schools will still accept your application at that point, but we see worse offers of admission and, and worse scholarship money coming to people who apply in February or March or April. So uh, no, the December test, there's no stigma. They are absolutely uh, happily accepting applications in January and they've got still seats available and scholarship money available. So yeah, I mean, get your 175 and, uh, and go for it. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, you don't want December to be your fallback if you can avoid it. So if you're listening to yeah. this podcast in the future, go for September, go for June, but, or go for February. I mean, just be yeah. early for the next cycle. Yeah. That's the, the problem is people just giving themselves one bite at it. And so, my my worry with Shiva is that if um, she's so like set on going this cycle that now she's giving herself one chance and if she only scores a 170, you know, which is totally within the realm of possibility, if you can score a 175, then you can also score a 170 mm-hmm. uh, just through no fault of your own, really just circumstances. You get a tough logic game. Who knows what? Right. Yeah. But if she scores that 170, I would hate for her to just apply, not get in, and just decide, okay, screw it. I'm going to go to some lesser school. Yeah. Uh, instead, I would definitely say, hey, you've been able to get 175s on your practice tests. Let's go ahead and take it in February and wait and reapply at the beginning of the next admission cycle. Or if you're really that urgent or anxious, uh, a 175 in February will still open a lot of doors, even at Stanford, I think. Depends on our GPA. Possible. Yeah, be in touch with the admissions committee and tell them that you're taking the test again. With those kinds of crazy scores, it, it, you know, good things can happen. Yeah. Hey, so did you know that I uh, worked for a legal writing consultant before doing all this stuff? Uh, sounds vaguely familiar. Okay. Well, since we've had two IEs in the last email, yeah, I, I just need to set the record straight here. First yeah. of all, here's the rule on IE and EG. You need to know what they mean, and you also need to not use them. <laughs> uh, okay, sure. So here, here's the real here's the reason why is you need to know what they mean because lawyers use them all the time. You need to know what you're reading when you see it, but you also just need to avoid it because it's 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 not the clearest type of writing. There are people who get confused by what you're saying, and it's slower than just saying straight up that is or for example. So, e.g. 
is for example, an easy way to remember is because E is example. Yep. And then IE is that is. And so the I means like is, right? So you can think of IE as that is and EG as for example. Yep. But honestly, just replace them with those phrases. It's that's that's English for you. And this is a big problem in law school too, by the way, and young attorneys is that they use a ton of Latin that they learn in law school. Judges actually don't want that. Almost every sort of write, pompous writing that you can think of is not emulated or used at all by the nine justices on the Supreme Court. So if you think that this is the way to go, go in the other direction. The more plain and straightforward you can make your language, the better. And that includes Xing these IEs and these EGs. I agree. You want to make it as easy as possible for your reader to understand what you're saying. And so throwing in Latin and fancy words, uh, trying to sound smart, it doesn't make you more readable. It's kind of an insult to your reader. So just, yeah, don't do it. I think Shiva uh, does use this correctly in this case. But yeah. Just because you know how to use it correctly doesn't mean you should actually use it. Yeah, you should know it for your own, like, you know, understanding. But and one side note, um, the nine justices today might not use that crazy kind of language. But in all the cases that they're going to have to read from the 1700s and 1800s and early 1900s, all those justices used crazy, ridiculous, lofty language, outdated yeah. stuff. And that's probably why young lawyers try to emulate, you know, they're, they're trying to be like, um, what was his name? John Paul Williams? Is that his name? Um, I don't know. I'm such a I, I just bad... remember learned hand. <laughs> <laughs> I remember... I think it was Justice John Paul <laughs> Williams. Does that sound right? And he would always say things like pellucid. John and, Paul? That's, isn't that like a pope or something? Um, well, they're kind of popes, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they don't wear the funny hats, but they do wear no weird idea. robes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, John Paul. I don't remember that. that they also um, you know, trade in uh, like dogma that is not real. So they're not, not popes. Great, dude. You've just alienated all our, our our loyal Catholic listeners. Oh, really? Is that... Uh, oh, I didn't know that was an insult against Catholics. I thought I was... In oh, the- I don't know. <laughs> Dogma, things that are not true. Oh, um, I will, I was meant that as a blanket insult to all religious people at once. Uh, okay, good. So now we've Catholics. covered everybody. Don't worry, yes. we're not... Okay, good. good. Glad to know. All right, yeah. So anyways, sorry for that tangent, but it's just... Just FYI. Okay. Next uh, next message? Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, boy, did I hear a lot of people say they missed the deadline for the September LSAT this year. Really? So many people. Yeah, so many people messed that up. That is tragic. The LSAT's only offered four times a year. It is really sad when you don't get to take that other, you know, because, I mean, Shiva could have had two cracks at it. Shiva also could have scored 175 in September and been done with the LSAT. And now instead, she's going to have to be grinding it out toward December. And then now she only has one chance at it if she wants to apply early in the or, you know, normal, regular registration in the cycle and not be late. So that's a bummer. I mean, go to the LSAC website, make sure you check and recheck those deadlines. Go ahead and register now. You know, it's it's sometimes it's worth the investment, even if you end up having to pay the test date change fee it can be worth it to just have the option to take it when you want to take it. Yeah, I have to sheep- sheepishly admit that I missed the deadline as well. And and very foolishly, I put it off to the last day and then I said, "Well, I have till midnight." Well, I was on the the, you know, oh, over in no. the west 
And so the so midnight was really you know nine p.m. or whatever. It, it was completely stupid. Complete stupidity. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Next. Uh, next message, dear Ben and Nathan. I have two questions. One: Have the logic games gotten harder in more recent tests? And if so, blah blah blah. I'm gonna just go ahead and say no. They haven't. Oh, I was gonna say. Uh, Yes, they have. I guess wow. it depends on what you mean by recent tests. I think that, uh, like, if you take a look at the tests in the Green Book, which is 52 to 61, mm-hmm. I feel like more of those are on the easier side. There are definitely hard ones in there. Of course, there's the famous <clears throat> Dinosaurs game. There's the van shuttle stops. Ugh, there's the I high school debates. <laughs> so there are some high, hard games. Alicia's Courses, I'm thinking, too. And then the other one with the, the other in-out game with um, Courses. I don't remember. Okay, who. so that's a lot of hard games in the green book. It's a lot of hard games. I agree. But I have just I think I've just picked all of them. So I feel like there are a lot more easier games in the green book than, say, in the blue book, which is 62 to 71. And I feel like in the 70s, the games, the vast majority of games are the same. But I feel like we've gotten a few more of these games that come out of left field like in test 72 the the fourth game and in test i'm trying to think which one it is it's like 77 or whatever it's not i feel like the one in 72 do you know i'm talking about the the employees in the work pieces or something like that Yeah, which is an easy game i mean it's it's a curveball i wouldn't say that's an easy game i think that i think one big inference in that game you make that one big inference and the game's easy uh yeah, I I agree that makes it much easier, but I think that's the the challenge is that the unfamiliarity adds to the difficulty. Oh, right? Of course. Of course, but I mean there's examples of that that go way back. I mean, what about the the switches and the circuit load of the panel? That's in the green mm-hmm. book, right? And uh that's actually in the uh, purple book. That? But yeah, yeah, so the 19 so 28 to no, 29 to 38. That book, which is the one that comes before the new book that just came out. That one has, I think, on average, harder games. Well, those ones were clearly harder. I mean, I think there's no question that the late 90s and early 2000s had much harder games than what we see today. Okay, yeah. I, I would I would agree with you that in the late 2000s, middle, late 2000s, there are plenty of easy games. Yeah. But I just think there are still plenty of easy games. I'm not, I'm not afraid of today's logic games. I mean, they don't. Uh, I don't think it's useful for people to think that they have gotten harder, for one thing. I, I agree that <clears throat> most games are the same as all the other games, but because you have these occasional, like, oh, what the heck do I do with this type of games, I think it is helpful for people to think, all right, I should go back and do some of these weird old games to get sort of used to change mm-hmm. so that not everything is like, oh, another grouping game, oh, another ordering game or hybrid game or whatever they get used to something that's a little bizarre and figuring out how to solve it because i agree if you can make that difference if you can think through it it becomes not so hard of a game i think what's hard about it is not knowing what to do and panicking yeah but that's been the story since the beginning of time on the lsat is that they they don't announce that they're making changes to the logic games they they come up with new game types and just kind of go, here you go. Mm-hmm. But, and you have to be open to that. I mean, there are, there are weird games. I, I mean, I, I almost don't even bother putting games into categories because there are so many games that are not really categorizable. Mm-hmm. I, 
I think you have to do all of the most recent games. I think you need to do like every game for sure from prep test 60 and beyond Mm -hmm. in order to be fully prepared. And if you do all of those sections, you will find that there are going to be curveballs sprinkled throughout. You totally could get a curveball on the day of your test. There's no way to prepare for that specific curveball because you don't even know. We have no idea what it's going to be. I mean, that that game with the work pieces was just kind of something new. And you you just have to understand that they are solvable if you read the rules and you understand each of the individual rules and you start thinking about the ways that those rules are going to interact. You should be able to figure out an answer to each one of the questions with certainty. So that's part of why I teach the way I teach with mixed sections, not a lot of theory, uh, not a lot of semantics and categorization. It's more just like, hey, let's see what these games look like Mm -hmm. and let's just do them. This writer says, on the recent tests, I've found that the rules seem not to be as straightforward. Consequently, I've been running out of time. How can I prepare for these more intricate logic games? I definitely don't think the new games are more intricate. I don't think, in fact, if anything, there's a lot of examples of the games being simpler. We had a game recently, or we well, had a section. I, th- I think she's specifically, or he or she, sorry, is referring to the games that are strange, right? So how can I prepare for sure. these strange games? Strange, but not intricate. I mean, they, they are strange, but they are very simple. That workpiece game just did not have a lot of moving parts in it. And so it could be strange, but it was not what I would call intricate. I mean, the, the old games, like if you look at the late 90s, early 2000s, that's intricate, where there's 10 different variables divided mm-hmm. into four mm-hmm. different categories. And, you know, there's this, th- that used to have a lot to sort of manage. Some of these new weird games are just sort of one very simple little trick and then there are also sections really recently like in 2014 or 2015 i can think of a couple sections where like game one put five things into groups game two put five things in order game Mm -hmm. three put five things in groups Mm -hmm. and (laughs) just the low number of variables it ends up i think making things much easier so, yeah, well, I, I still feel like, I mean, the question is, how, how do I, how do I prepare for this, this, um, these unknowns and dealing with these unknowns? Cause yeah. I've prepared for the knowns, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the ordering or whatever. And I agree they're there. And a lot of times these games will have like difficulty one, difficulty one, difficulty two, and then difficulty five. Cause everybody's like, wait, what, what do I do with this? So I would say go back and get, it's 20 bucks, get, uh, tests 29 to 38. They are all in one book. <clears throat> Do you remember the title for that one? That's the next ten. The, the next ten. The orange one. The orange and orange and purplish one. Yeah, the it's orange and purple. The one. next ten. Yeah. So get that book, and I mean, I think there's value in doing all the sections in there. But if you don't have time and you're focusing on logic games, just go ahead and do the game sections there because I think yep. you're going to encounter games you've never seen before. The lovely new and used CDs game. Oh my god. All sorts of stuff is yep. is in there. Yeah, so. and those are games that are that really are tough. I mean, the, I for, I would say those ones for sure are harder than the ones that we have today. 
you'll also just encounter lots of weird curveballs and that'll happen in all of the books any mm-hmm. any one of those books if you just buy the book 10 10 tests for 22 dollars or whatever it is do all 10 of those logic game sections you're gonna see some curveballs and um, i think that's the way you get used to hitting the curveball is you just get lots of curveballs in your face yeah and you can't prepare it for any one individual type of new twist but you can get used to the idea that there are twists and that you can figure it out it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier ben is that you know the one must do is you have to understand Mm -hmm. and so i think people give up because they see something that looks kind of funny and they you know they they, they're oh i I would know what to do if this was a square peg or a round peg, but I don't know what to do with this triangular shaped peg. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, okay, but what you have to do is just read it, understand it, read it again if you need to, understand it, and then improvise some sort of a solution. I think the way you get good at the improvisation is you just do lots of sections. Yeah. Follow up or second question here uh, is do people go to non top 14 schools and still manage to graduate pass the bar land a full-time associate position in big law and repay their loans yes yes next question (laughs) (laughs) uh yes now you know that said um this writer says every associate at my firm went to harvard or yale which leads me to believe that what I think I know about law school and lawyering can't be completely objective. They say, uh, go to the best school you can get into, go to the highest ranked law school you get into regardless of cost. That's what all these lawyers are telling her. Mm -hmm. Does this sound right to you? Do big law firms really care so much about the institution you went that they wouldn't give you the time of day if you went to a less prestigious law school? I mean, I, I, I think I can say yes to that at certain firms. Yeah, I, I'm actually sympathetic to this argument if you're talking about the top four. Like, I think there is immense value in saying I went to Harvard Law. Right. I think it just extends. Or Stanford. Or Stanford, or Yale. yeah. This just goes way beyond big law, way beyond that. It's just This is going to impact your career for the rest of your life. You can you can go into politics. Not that anyone would want to, but uh, you could you know whatever you decide to do. You want to become a CEO of some company. Harvard Law grad is going to get you there. I mean, obviously you'd have to bring a lot more to the table than just that. But it's not like it's going to hold you back in any way, and it could definitely help you uh, in terms of credibility and so forth. But when you start getting lower schools than that, I think it becomes a lot more serious debate. Do you want to go to Georgetown Law School, which is like top 14, or I think it's like ranked 14 or 15 or something like that, versus George Washington, which is 22 or something like that, and then have them pay for it all, versus Georgetown, who's not going to pay you very much or only 10000 Like That is a much bigger decision, and I think the difference in schools is minimal enough that yeah. the money becomes a lot more valuable. Yeah, people need to stop thinking about it in these binary terms of just top 14 versus, you know, everything else. Because, like, you're, that is a perfect example. The difference between Georgetown and George Washington, um, if it's going to cost you $150,000 less, I'm sure there is a firm that would only interview Georgetown and not George Washington. And mm-hmm. if that's the firm that you have to work for, 
then maybe you have to go to Georgetown. Yeah. Right. You know, if, if you have to be a Supreme Court justice, then you need to go to Harvard or Stanford or Yale. Mm -hmm. But if you just, I think big law is a very broad category and there absolutely are lawyers who went to all sorts of different law schools who ended up working at big law firms. Oh, for sure. And even at like, we're talking schools that maybe even in the sixties, if you get in the top 10% of your class, so these, a lot of these firms, maybe even if they're not big law at first, but you, you do well at say American university, which is, I think somewhere in the sixties or fifties. And then you go to a medium sized law school or (laughs) law firm in the area and you do well there. And then two years in, you're la- you're going over to a big law firm. Yeah, or you work in public service. You know, you're a assistant DA and you get all kinds of court experience and you do really well there. Then mm-hmm. now the big firms are, are, they don't give much of a shit, I don't think, anymore about where you went to law school necessarily because no. they know no. you can cut it in the real world. Yeah. Uh, all that said, I'm sure there are some firms, you know, that are going to be only Harvard and Yale. And maybe she works at this firm but i i just think there are lots of options out there and you should apply broadly and compare your offers to one another and then really think about it talk to as many lawyers as you can and just make a as educated of a decision as you possibly can yeah and you've said this a million times before but i couldn't agree more even if you know that you would never go to x law school for whatever reason even if someone put a gun to your head if it's within the range of the schools that you're looking at in terms of ranking and location and whatnot, apply to it because you can still pretend that you want to go there when you get that offer from it and are comparing that to another law school and want to use that as leverage. Yeah. I've seen it happen a million times. You just have to put yourself in a better bargaining position. Even if you're not going to explicitly use that as leverage, Mm-hmm. you know your value now, right? Because they gave you this offer. Yeah. And so now you're going to you're gonna just have that kind of in your pocket and, and think about it and go, oh, well, I got a full ride to this school over here. And now when I'm negotiating with the school that I really want to go to, even if I am absolutely not going to go take that full ride, at least you'll know, oh, well, they gave me this. And let me think about now what this school is giving me. Yeah. Sign off here. Uh, I found it kind of amusing. It says, if you end up using this email on a podcast, please refer to me as something basic like Lauren or Jenna. So thank you, um, Lauren or Jenna. And I'm also sorry to all the Lauren and Jenna's out there that just got called basic. (laughs) Okay. So one thing she does raise here that I wanted to go back to really quick. Sorry. She's talking about how she has considerable amount of debt from undergrad, right? Mm. And she's worried about taking on more debt or basically postponing those payments, which I think you can do. Uh, that makes sense. When you can, you... and you just keep racking up more and more principal <laughs> the entire time. Yep. Uh, so given the, the cost of debt these days, it actually might not be a bad move. Well, student loans aren't as cheap, though. Oh, aren't they affected by the rates? I thought they not, would Not as much as you would hope. The student loan money is not cheap. Huh. Not It's not as cheap as, like, you know, well... It's because the loan on your house is secured by the house. Yeah. The loan, your student loans is secured by like nothing. So, you know, I guess those federal loans are guaranteed by the federal government, but they, you know, you're going to owe that money forever. And they, they, they do not 
charge very attractive rates on most student loans. So I, th- I think her concern is totally valid. I would say that um, I got a lot of the same messages as I was deciding where to go to law school. And it was like, hey, look, go to a good law school, do well, and don't worry about the, the your loans. Because if you go to a good law school, you'll do fine. And I have to say, you got to consider the actual facts and your situation and so on. But I am somewhat sympathetic to this argument if you're, again, talking about really top, top tier law schools. I feel like if you feel like you can succeed there somewhat reasonably, I think there's a good chance that you'll have opportunities. And if you can land a, a job at a big law firm, which is the big question, but if you feel like it's 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 possible, this money is going to be paid back pretty fast, I feel like. I, I feel like big law firms, you make way more money than you imagine you could make uh, in any other sort of job if you land it and things go well. But if that's not a likely possibility, then of course the debt becomes a serious concern. And I know that that's what she's worried about. But if you do land that job, I feel like you make money pretty fast. I guess, yeah. If there's any doubt that you are going to not maybe be successful in law school or that you're maybe not going to be happy in a legal career or that you're not going to get the job you want to get, those all argue in favor of minimizing your risk by taking scholarship money. Yeah. If if uh, Lauren or Jenna is totally sure, right, that mm-hmm. that um, she knows what she's getting herself into and she knows that if she does go to a Harvard or Stanford or Yale that she's going to be able to get this job, if they're just explicitly saying like, yeah, go to Harvard, we're going to hire you, mm-hmm. and she knows what those people make and she knows that she could actually stomach that lifestyle, if that's you, then sure, then you're going to be on that you know, we've talked about the bimodal distribution of um, yeah. starting starting yep. lawyer salaries. Mm-hmm. And if you know that you're going to be in that second uh, peak, the upper peak of, of law school, of, of, start, of starting salaries for lawyers, and you're going to be making $160,000 a year right out of school, then yeah, that debt doesn't matter uh, nearly as much because $160,000 a year is a lot of money and you can pay back loans pretty quickly mm-hmm. that way. But boy, you go to Georgetown and then you don't land that job or you go to Georgetown and then you decide you don't want to practice, mm-hmm. <laughs> then then now you're you're on that hook for not only that, but also the money you, you accumulated in um, undergrad. And yeah. that's how people end up owing a quarter of a million dollars, which is, I mean... Yeah, as a, as a barista, that's... <laughs> it's, it's insurmountable. I mean, there people are... There are many of these people are quite literally never going to pay off their student loans. Yeah. Which is just, uh, I mean, it's a scary proposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Anything else on that one? No. Let's go to Boba Fett. Boba Fett. Hi, my name is Redacted Boba Fett. And That's what he says. I just got it from the bottom. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> taking it out of the, I don't want to accidentally read it here. Something basic like Boba Fett. Something basic like Boba Fett. Uh, Let's see. Do we need to read this? Mm, Questions. I have some letters of recommendation from a professor. I got these letters in 2015 and 2016. Will those letters still be good when I send my apps in fall of 2017? I, I think if they're law related, yes. I don't know that the timing really matters. And I think even if they're from a professor, I, I don't care. I mean, we have another email maybe down here later about getting an, an, a letter of recommendation from 
a, a professor from like sophomore year of college. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that stuff really matters all that much. If they're saying nice things about you, if they were a supervisor, you know, your boss or your professor, and they either gave you an A or they gave you a promotion, and they're going to say super nice uh, things about you that paint you in a good light, I think you're fine. And I don't think you need to worry about exactly the dates on those letters. I just can't imagine that that's going to really matter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, cash is tight. I've heard a lot of good things about Seven Sage, and it's cheap. Is it too good to be true? Have you heard anything about this program? What do we want to say about Seven Sage? Uh, I've heard good things. I think I think they save a little money uh, because they. I don't think they include uh, official LSAT questions, or they may include some, but I think you still have to buy your own books or something. I mean, I think they're just trying to make it easier to, if you already have your own books, you're not like paying for them twice, basically. So it probably makes sense, but I think that might be why it's a little cheaper. I'm not 100% sure about that, though. Yeah, I've heard people say good things as far as just the quantity of explanations. You get sort of like an explanation to every LSAT question ever, I think. Mm. Um, I've heard other people say that they didn't feel like they were learning that much from those explanations, though, that they were like technically correct, but they're not heavy on actual... strategy or something yeah or just or just you know i think some of them i watched a couple of the videos and to me some of the videos were like well here's how one really smart person would do it Mm. but not like hey let's consider alternate approaches and let's talk about why we're doing it this way Mm -hmm. you know just kind of like here's a demonstration without much um explanation of what's actually going on and why we're doing this and which parts are important and which parts are patterns that repeat themselves and that kind of stuff. I think it's just sort of like very smart demonstrations in some cases. So I yeah. don't, I don't really know. Hmm. I mean, I do know that they have, <laughs> I kind of laughed about their foolproof method. Have you heard of the foolproof method? No, they have a foolproof method Ben, for logic games. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I better implement it quickly. Yep. It's do every game ever made until you can do each one in five minutes. That's the foolproof method. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I, I, <laughs> I actually thought their method was to do every game 10 times. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I do encourage people to repeat games until they can get them faster, but I do have them spread it out. So they might do a game once and then twice and then not come back to it for a long time and just like check in and see if they can get their time down a little bit faster. But even then you still got to expose yourself to new games and more games and harder games. So, yeah, mm. I don't, I don't have anything bad to say about seven stage. I, I think it's helped a lot of people. So, um, yeah, uh, good luck. Let us know what you think. Uh, we, we, we love to hear what's out there and what people think of it. So let us know. Sure. Number three, I have a rough draft of my personal statement. A family friend who's an attorney looked at it and helped me do some edits. Is there anything else I could do to help out with my personal statement? Well, I would get Anne Levine's book. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. It's called The Law School Admission Game. It's awesome. It has lots of interesting thoughts about personal statements, including some sample personal statements. Mm-hmm. I think you need more than just one friend to look at it. Yeah. 
anyone anyone who can read it and react to it like say yeah. we, you know this this sentence sounds a little arrogant or this sentence doesn't make sense you just need other perspectives and the more the better i would not follow everyone's advice i've heard people they talk to their uncle and their uncle's like well you have to do this and then their aunt is like well no you should do this and their grandma you know says why didn't you talk about when you were five and you know saved the fish from the pond right. like I, I wouldn't take all their advice, but I would try to listen to what they're reacting to and what that says about how your message is being conveyed. It's like, whoa, everyone is sort of reacting to this in a negative way. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it needs to be written. I wouldn't necessarily do what they say, but it is insightful that they're sort of have a reaction to it. And um, maybe that means you need to change it. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they make a note on something means that they either, you know, had a hard time reading it or for whatever reason it bumped them. Mm -hmm. And so you should think about, you know, whether you've written it as clearly as you could. Um, yeah. The main two questions that I like a personal statement to answer are why you and why law school? Mm -hmm. I think those are your two uh, things to keep in mind and then it just needs to be really beautifully edited it needs to be perfectly edited that's like the mm -hmm. number one thing is that it just can't have typos it can't have run-on sentences bad punctuation all that stuff has to be perfectly cleaned up so i might i might actually recommend hiring uh, a professional to copy edit not to write the whole statement but to copy edit if you're at all unsure because it just can't have any typos. You will be judged on um, grammar and spelling and punctuation and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, and it goes beyond just like, uh, you know, grammar and spelling. I mean, those are 100% necessary, essential, <laughs> important. You can't right. mess them up. But it, it's also like some things that people just don't even realize or think about. Like you have parallelism, right? When people write out a sentence and they have three ideas in that sentence and they all start with like a different either a noun and then a, a verb yeah. like people don't know those things necessarily but that's good readers are going to clue in on that and they're like okay so th this isn't you're not top notch right yeah people are bad writers man they're getting worse i don't know if you're noticing this in your students mm. they're getting worse i've seen a few different um specifically university of california students uh coming from uc berkeley and ucla Mm -hmm. which are the two best of the undergraduate institutions uh, in the UC system. Yeah. And I can't believe how bad the writing is from some of these people. I mean, some of them are fantastic, but some of them are just awful. And hmm. um, I don't know. I, I don't know what people are doing in school for four years when they come out and they still write like this. It is what it is. You just need to make sure that you have some help. This document, this two-page document is... Um, very important you have unlimited time to work on it you there's no nothing stopping you from getting feedback and help from people who who really do write clearly and sort of natively mm -hmm. and you need that you just you can't have it sounding all clunky and broken people will read two sentences and immediately be judging you yeah okay and as an attorney that's why there are legal writing consultants yeah Number four, I've been putting off studying for two years because I've been scared to fail. I'm done being scared and I need to pursue my dreams. Any tips to keep motivation or shoo away those self-doubt feelings whilst studying? Yeah, so one thing I, I thought when I read this was that Bubba Fett sounds like, I think a lot of test takers, if you have any fear 
toward studying or taking a test, you're probably thinking about the test in the wrong way. It may be completely subconsciously and you have no idea what is going on and why you're thinking this, but you're probably thinking of the test as an assessment yep. of your smartness. Yep. We should stop calling it a test. It's not good to think about it as a test. Yeah. I think you should think about it as a game that you can practice and get a lot better at. Mm-hmm. And no one's going to be judging you and you shouldn't be judging yourself on how you perform on this game, especially when you first start. Mm-hmm. People like to read theory for a month before they ever even do a full test. And it's because they're afraid of tests. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, stop thinking about it so much as an intelligence test and like this is where you're going to be forever. And yeah. instead treat it as, hey, you know, you're stepping out onto the basketball court for the full first time and you're going to throw the ball around and, you know, miss badly. But who cares? Because you're, you're working on it. You're practicing. You're getting better at it. Yeah, so one way to keep the motivation up with this in mind is to, one, stop looking at it like you're saying. Looking at it as a, look at it as a game. And I think this is what you're saying, but focus 100% if you can on learning. Like expect, go into each test, go into each study session and say, what can I learn? Not how much do I have to learn? How much, um, how horrible am I at this? Like, it doesn't matter. If you get questions wrong, that's often a good thing because it forces you to learn. So it's like, oh, I got this wrong. Sometimes we get questions right and we don't learn anything from it, even though we could have because we got it right and we sort of move on. So it's like, go into each session and say, how many things can I take away from this and know when I leave? If I learn six things, wow, I'm, I'm that much of a better of a person. <laughs> and I know more about life, et cetera, and eventually you'll start seeing those lessons translate into higher scores. Yeah, and I think it's just one day at a time, right? One baby step, one step at a time. People mm-hmm. get frustrated because their score doesn't go up, but one, why are you paying so much attention to every single test score? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you should be taking a longer view. Two, Um, the scoring scale only goes from 120 to 180. There's only 60 points in the scoring scale. And if you, people think they haven't improved, but their score has gone up by three points, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You've only been at this for 10 days. Your score is now three points higher than it was when you started. Uh, To me, that looks like progress. You know, that's baby step. We're we're going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And if you can, I think people don't understand the amount of work that might be required. You know, people want it to be easy. And they want to just be exceptional on the test right away. Mm -hmm. But that's not how it really happens. I mean, people improve on the logical reasoning, especially really just kind of slowly, incrementally over time, right? Like Mm -hmm. one more question per week or something like that. Yeah. And that's why it takes people three months to prepare because they're, they're going to slowly chip away at it. And people end up making 15 or 20 point improvements one point at a time for three months or six months. Yeah. So, you know, Boba Fett has put off studying now for two years. I mean, imagine what kind of progress could have been made in those two years. Yeah. I think this is exactly why you need to avoid top law schools and other forums and even, even close friends who are doing really well on the test. I do not think no matter how close they are, that they are telling you the whole truth. (laughs) 
and nothing but the truth. It's like, oh, I started studying. I got a one seventy three. How's it going for you? Are you are you um you know you're gonna take it in September? Oh, I'm not really feeling that ready. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, I just you know I started like a month before and I put in a lot. Of, like, they may think they're telling the truth, but they not, may not remember that they actually started two months ago. They actually didn't get a 173 that was just the highest score they ever got but they're really hovering around a 168 and so like you just have to kind of take people's stories and advice as a grain of salt you know generally stop comparing yourself to other people too right i mean yeah i mean it's hard to do it's hard not to but you're never gonna get out of this that that is you're never going to be president of the united states and you know chief executive or uh, sorry um on the supreme court like you're just you're not and so uh, if you're not going to reach those then there's always going to be somebody who did a little bit better than you there's always going to be somebody who has more advantages outscored you didn't work as hard and made more money and kick your ass in the courtroom so i think you need to just stop all of that kind of comparing and and measuring yourself against other people no matter what school you go to you know unless you go to yale there's Mm -hmm. always going to be somebody looking down their nose at you like oh well i would never go to that school yeah so it's just it doesn't matter what your friend is scoring it doesn't matter what school your friend went to if you really know what lawyers do and this is really the right thing for you then you can just kind of start chipping away at the test and it might take you a long time but that's why you start as soon as you can and just um, chip away and make baby steps. Yeah. You got time for one more email? Yeah, let's hear what uh, Calvin has to say. Okay, so Calvin says, uh, I'm interested to hear what you think of my scores in progress and more specifically where I should focus my efforts in preparing for the December 2016 LSAT. Uh, In my mind, reading comprehension is usually my best section and comes the easiest. That's a very good thing. My only problem is more often than not missing the main point question at the beginning of each section. I can get it down to two, but I have trouble confidently choosing one over the other. Maybe we stop there and give some tips. Yeah, so that would go back to the two tips from earlier in the episode. If you're paying attention, you should know what they are by now. Yeah, give people a moment to see if they can recall. Sure. All right, yeah, so a couple of you got that wrong. That's unfortunate, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, if you narrow it down to, to two, if you narrow it down to a 50-50, I mm-hmm. think that's even going to be more of a helpful uh, time to think about, hey, uh, is one of these answers overstating it? Does one of these answers go further than what the author actually went? Is this a mm-hmm. very strong answer choice? Uh, if they're if one of them's stronger and one of them's weaker, you might want to lean toward the the more weakly stated one. Yeah. The other thing would be, uh, does this actually capture the main point? I think your prediction there is really important. You know, you need to have been able to boil it down into well, basically the author thinks this about this, mm-hmm. and that gist of it, that that kernel of of whatever you thought the main point was. Does one of the answers have that, and the other answer not have that? Um, say you narrowed it down to B and C is B part of it. Does B support C would B be used as evidence in support of C Mm -hmm. in that case, C has got to be the main idea and B was just evidence on the way to get to that main idea. Yeah. So that's what I would be thinking if I narrowed it down to a 50, 50 on main point questions. Cool. 
I can tell my LR sections are improving, but my scores vary greatly. For reference, Ben's score tracker says I miss necessary and sufficient assumptions and must be trues most frequently. I have Nathan's logical reasoning book, but I only look at questions I have already seen on prep tests so as not to spoil questions I run into on later PTs. That right there, Calvin, I would stop doing that. I don't think you need to worry about saving those prep tests. You know, the encyclopedia has tests 40 through 60 in it, selected questions from tests 40 through 60. There are plenty of tests in the 70s that are available that you could use as diagnostics. If you really want to save tests for diagnostics, I think you could save a few of them in the 70s for diagnostics. I don't think you need to worry about encountering the same question twice when you're looking at prep test 40 through 60. Cool. Um, so I, I wouldn't bother with that. And that's because Calvin's going through my online class, which also focuses on uh, prep tests 40 through 60. But I don't, the point is learning. The point is not to be constantly diagnosing exactly your score. I just don't care about that. I care which type of questions you're missing. And if you have already seen it once and you miss it again, then, I mean, that's only going to tell you, you need to focus on that more not less. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't worry about saving questions at all. Mm -hmm. As you can see, my highest score, because Calvin sent a spreadsheet with a bunch of results. Thank you uh, for that, Calvin. As you can see, my highest score is 165, and my average for the last five tests is 160. My studying consists of 35-minute time sections, followed by review and the videos from uh, my online on-demand course that correspond to that practice test. I have until December. Where should my focus be? I don't need to get to 170, but I do consider it a personal goal. Am I a contender to do so? Calvin. Uh, yes, he's a contender to do so. In terms of some of these things, he's talking about what should my focus be? Oh, so I actually remember looking at his results in the score tracker. Yep. And he was getting an average of six wrong in all three sections. I think it was like six wrong games, six wrong reading comp. And this is averaging his last five or six tests. Okay. And maybe like seven wrong in one of the reasoning, but six wrong in the other reasoning. So my advice was like, well, you should be focusing on all three of them. And although games is the easiest to improve, I also feel like they're – you know, so maybe he should be focusing a little bit more there and probably a little bit more in logical reasoning because there's two of them. But even then, I'd still put time into reading comp. So it seems like it should just he should just be going through 35-minute sections from tests, and he's getting the perfect sort of allocation of time to questions with maybe a little extra practice in games. Yeah, I think that, that sounds right as well. I noticed that um, on the scores that he sent in the spreadsheet, he had it looked like only done about maybe a third of the tests that are in my online class. Mm, so mm -hmm. I would just continue working all the way through that entire online class, you know, just do all of those tests one section at a time, watch all of those videos he's got from now till December. He's got plenty of time to work his way through all that. I did want to point out. Uh, yeah. The fact that you've scored a 165 means that you are a candidate to break 170 for sure. You know, it's not a tough leap to get from 165 to 170. I mean, not to say that it's easy, but I've seen people do that a million times. And I would almost say there's a chance you could do that tomorrow on a practice test. 
if you've already scored a 165. Yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to add is that uh, in order to reach 170, many people are going to need to be perfect on the logic games. So that's a big opportunity. Uh, Calvin is enjoying the games and feels like he's learning, uh, watching videos, etc. But you're not perfect on the games. And it's for a lot of folks, it's going to be very difficult to ever get that accurate on the logical reasoning and reading comprehension. But games people do get reliably, consistently perfect on. So I would just say, um, especially keep grinding out those games and get to perfection there because that's almost always the easiest route to 170. Yeah. Uh, one last comment, and it kind of relates to that because it's games. He says, I am often unable to make the large game-crushing inferences with regard to those two game types, hybrid and grouping. I wouldn't really worry about the types so much. I would just think about making inferences in general, and that involves taking time to think about the rules that you've written down, whether that's in an if question or after the initial setup of the diagram. The one way I like to think about it is I will read the game, I will draw out the rules, and then I will look at them, and the vast majority of people don't. They just go right into the questions. And when I'm looking at them, I am looking at the variables that are the most constrained. So, for example, if there's a variable that's in more than one rule, then that variable is likely to be more constrained than other variables. So then I will focus in on that variable and I'll say to myself, okay, this one seems to be more constrained than the others. What does that mean about it? Can it go in four slots or three slots? Oh, wait, maybe it can only go in two slots. And at that point, I'm then asking myself, well, would it be helpful to know that it's in this slot or the other slot. And if it is, then we're creating multiple scenarios or worlds. And if it's not super helpful, like it doesn't really lead to anything, then maybe not. But the point is, is like playing around with the variables in your head, playing around with extremes, testing different options again in your head, uh, and just trying to think about what, what do these rules do to the variables and how do they interact? And all this takes 30 seconds uh, after you've practiced it a lot. if you Every time you do a game, you force yourself to think about the rules before you go into the questions. You will get faster and faster at testing out scenarios in your head. Not completely. You can't do it all out in your head. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like thinking about one or two variables in particular and imagining them moving around in the game and what that means. And that has huge dividends, huge payoffs. Because either you end up creating two worlds that complete the game or three or four worlds that complete the game or you go into the questions and now because you're familiar with the rules, when they ask you a question that's related to one of those rules, right away you're like, oh, well that means that S has to go here. And all of a sudden you're creating a diagram that moves quickly. So sometimes people are like, well, I spent all this time and I didn't draw anything else. Yeah, but you're also way more familiar with the rules and you're going to move way faster through the questions. I, I just see it time and time again with myself and with other students. Yeah, the more time you devote to making a diagram and really understanding the way the system works, the better off you're going to be when you go to those questions. That's definitely clear. I wanted to point out there's one rule type that's been just popping up over and over on recent games mm. in the uh, 60s and 70s is this one rule where it says, oh, and uh, H can't go third. It's just a, it's just one rule that says one player can't go in one spot. Yep, okay. Mm -hmm. And those rules 
they seem insignificant, it's easy to skim over them or it's easy to just put, okay, H can't go third and just add that to your diagram and move on to the next thing. Sure. But what you said is you, you're, you're looking at people who are constrained and if H can't go third, then the next question is where can H go? Yeah. Because if H was mentioned in another rule, there might be a couple other places where H can't go. And then if you start thinking about all the places where H can go, you might see that there's an interaction between other rules that actually prevent H from even going in some of those spots. Yeah. Right. And so it's, I swear it's the first, it's like the, just the first little, little breadcrumb. And there are so many games that just unlock based on that one rule. So be, uh, as you look at the, your logic games, as you review your logic games, be on the lookout for places where they told you one player can't go in one spot. And then maybe see if you, if you could have had an opportunity there to, to attack the game based on just that, that one first breadcrumb. Yeah. No, that's a great, great analogy. I, it reminds me of when I was preparing for the test, my instructor challenged us to write our own game and I ended up writing two of them. And I just, have kind of forgotten about this. I mentioned it the other day in class, but now that I'm thinking about it, I do remember uh, writing the game. And when I wrote the first game and I started writing questions, I mean, I just modeled it off of a, you know, a similar game because I didn't know what I was doing. But mm-hmm. when I was writing the questions, it forced me to like think backwards, like think from the correct answer all the way back to the original rules. Okay. And sometimes I would change the original rules. I'd be like, oh, well, there's a lot of options here, so I need to add sort of a constraint, but I don't want it to be so obvious that there now aren't, you know, only one scenario that works given my new rule. So it was just like sort of an eye-opening experience. And I tell my class every now and then, I say, hey, I wrote a game when I was studying for the LSAT. Why don't you do that? And everybody's like, no, I'm not going to do that. But I think it was a very valuable experience. Like it made me think backwards and how the test writers come up with these questions and the inferences and how that all relates back to this breadcrumb, right? If you start at the end and go back to where it all started, you're much more likely, I think, to see how these things can get started. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I I don't actually have my students do that, but that is definitely... um... Well, I I don't either, because every time I suggest it, everybody's like, yeah, whatever. But... (laughs) <laughs> I, I I challenge you all to uh, to our listeners to to write a game and if you write it, send it to me. I'll gladly do the game and tell you if I think there's any mistakes or whatever. Um, I think it's a I think it's one of those things that's hard to do, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. But I think it can have a, a decent impact on terms of your understanding of how you get from the beginning to the end. Uh, the last, do you have anything else you wanted to say about that? No, I don't. I think I'm good. Okay. The last thing is a quick reminder. If you want to watch videos and give me your feedback on them and then learn something from them because you're preparing for the test as well, obviously, email me at ben at strategyprep.com and I will put you in contact with Seth and we can figure out if that makes sense for you. As always, we appreciate your questions. We got a ton today. Didn't even get to any actual logical reasoning questions, but we'll definitely jump on those next time. Uh, You can always email us at help at thinkinglsat.com. You can find the previous episodes, of course, uh, on our website if you're looking for them there. It's just the thinkinglsat.com, or actually thinkinglsat.com, that's it. 
Uh, people post questions there as well be- below each episode. We're happy to tackle them there as well. And uh, you can tweet us at Thinking LSAT or Nathan at, what is it? That's Nathan at FoxLSAT.com. Oh, and tweet at NFox. Yeah, tweet at NFox. And of course, email Nathan at uh, FoxLSAT.com. Uh, yeah, that's it, I guess. Awesome. That was a that was a long one. Uh, thanks again for all of the questions, and we will be back at you in a couple weeks. Great. See you then.